0: That's the hinge of poetry for me. It's never one thing. It's where, like Miwosh says, it's where sorrow meets wonder. He says in a poem called Encounter, I ask not out of sorrow, but in wonder. And it's like this tipping toward wonder. And that's what I hope for the book. There is this sorrowful aspect, but there's also this tipping toward wonder.
1: And welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Christy Ashwanden. And I'm Rosemary watola Tromer, and this is a podcast on creative process. And Today we're going to be, in some ways, exploring the intersection between poetry and science, which is kind of appropriate, Ooh, right, Christy?
2: Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of is our podcast, that's right, kind of us. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. and, um, but within one person, and it occurs uh-huh. to me that there are a lot of poets who are very interested in bringing science into their writing. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course person who comes to mind first, Jane Hirschfield in her most recent book, right. Ledger, which is also about climate change and, um, you know, what are we what are we doing to our planet? Uh, yeah. You know, and all these poems that are kind of a clarion call to show up right now. Yeah. Um, so tell us about our guest today. Well, I'm excited to bring on David Keplinger, who's been a friend of mine for over 20 years, Ooh. but we haven't talk to each other in <laughs> over 20
2: years. Wow, that's, so that's a long time. Yeah. Kind of a reunion. Uh, I'm fun. excited.
1: Yeah. David is the director of the MFA program at American University, then the recipient of two NEA fellowships, the Colorado Book Award, the T.S. Elliott Award, which was selected by Mary Oliver, the Cavafy Prize, the Rilke Prize, the Emily Dickinson Award from the Poetry Society of America. It goes on and on. Wow. And his new poetry book is Ice. It combines a concern for climate change with a metaphor for inner light. Ooh. I'm excited to have him. Let's bring him on. Mm. Hey, David. Welcome.
0: Hey, Rosemary. How are you?
2: We're
1: so happy you can be here. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. So glad to be here. So I'm excited to talk about ice, and you have playfully referred to it as poetry via the Pleistocene. Actually, maybe it's not playful. I interpreted it as playful, but maybe maybe you didn't. Um, Will you share just a little bit about the premise of the book and how you came to write it?
0: Well, this book took me a long time to find. Uh, I I was writing a different kind of poem, and all the while, around 2018, 2019, I found myself kind of tangled in a a web of Internet articles that were coming from places like the Siberian Times, where I don't know how I found these photographs, but eventually I found them and then I couldn't stop looking at them. And they were pictures of these Ice Age animals that had been completely preserved by permafrost for 18,000 years, 26,000 years, 40,000 wow. years, 50,000 years, and were now being uh, found because of the receding and melting permafrost. So due to climate change, we're discovering this evidence of all of these lives who we were literally walking on top of for 50,000 years. And we get a real clear view of what the Pleistocene was was like, what it actually looked like. But there's also this this sense of, of mourning that goes along with it because we're seeing it as a result of Changes across the planet.
2: That's so interesting because, on the one hand, it's sort of a discovery, right? Like, wow, look at all these new things that we're discovering that we did not know were here. But then, oh, it's because we're screwing up the planet, and uh, that's not great. Exactly. Yeah, like things aren't as they should be.
0: Yeah, that's the hinge of poetry for me. It's it's never one thing. It's where, it, like Miwash says. It's where sorrow meets wonder. Mm. He says in a poem called Encounter, I ask not out of sorrow, but in wonder. And it's like this tipping toward wonder. And that's what, I, that's what I hope for the book. There is this sorrowful aspect, like you say, but there's also this tipping toward wonder that seems where poetry comes from.
1: That's interesting. Do you think that's personal? If it tips toward wonder or sorrow? do You know, one poet tips one way and one poet tips the other way.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the best poets tip neither way, but hold both. Mm-hmm. But you're so right, because even for me to say that it should tip toward wonder means that there's like a preference or an attachment there somehow. Mm-hmm. Which I and have to. I'll... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want, and I do that with my books, too. I don't know if you do, but I, I try to tip the book toward like positivity from the beginning poem to the end. I don't think of, of, of a book going on a downward slope toward, mm-hmm. you know, mourning. But that is a preference, and it probably is. It, it's probably a less skillful thing about about my, my poetry. But there is certainly uh, a leaning toward wonder, mm-hmm. and maybe that's a reflection of not only just what what I like to see in poetry, but but who I am.
1: Uh, well. I'm predisposed toward a leaning toward wonder myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and toward wanting to read that also. And and so as you start seeing all these things in, you know, the spirit times. And, <laughs> I mean, and what happens then? What happened in you? Like what was the next creative impulse? How did that feed you?
0: Well, I started to write about it because I was curious and fascinated by these photographs. And when that happens, I know that there's something that's haunting me about them, Mm -hmm. that's calling me toward them. And it's always so much fun when you don't know what that is yet. So I started writing about them because I didn't know why I was so interested in this. I'm not a scientist. I didn't study science as an undergraduate. I was an English major and a poet and uh, always have been a poet. But my leanings in the last five or six, maybe 10 years have been toward the body and towards anthropology of all things. So somehow, as I've gotten older, my interests in science and the meeting place where God and science become like one thing are uh, are just where I go now to begin my poems. So I started writing about these animals and I started to realize that metaphorically they were speaking to layers of bodies under the ice in me that were asking to have a voice and so each animal, whether it's a wooly rhino or whether it's a giant wolf head or whether it's a puppy that's been frozen for 18,000 years or a lemming, or even just recently uh, in late July, the Washington Post did an article about a roundworm that was found in this block of permafrost, 46,000 years old, and brought it to life. Uh, and it actually had babies in a lab. What? And, and then, yes. It, yes, it's unbelievable. So these, so these roundworms, now alive in the 21st century, were being carried in that roundworm that lived at the time Neanderthals were walking the earth. So it's just this incredible story of the term emergence comes to mind, resurrection. Uh, there are lots of themes in there that are, I think, rife with the stuff of poetry.
1: Wow. Okay, I have so mm. there's, I don't know. Even, I like, I want to ask every question at the same time right now. Please. Okay, so I love this theme of emergence, and I love that you become increasingly aware of this metaphor of these bodies inside you, you know, that are wanting also to become, have the permafrost, you know, receive. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. And what's going to be here? So there's this sense, there's this growing sense of a possibility of a metaphor for you also as, as, David Kevlinger right mm-hmm. am i am i right about this so far
0: Oh, yes, very much. Yeah, very much. So You're saying it better than I could.
1: <laughs> that I doubt. So so here we are. And had you written any of these poems already and you thought this poem is going to work? Or did this fascination with what's happening with the receding permafrost foster this whole new body of work that you got really excited about? If If I mm-hmm. let my frost go away, what am I going to discover inside? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And there are these wild animals. There are these... Wild animals frozen at the moments of their perishing. It's very Blakeian, you know. It's yeah. like the tiger that's right. pressed down for a long time, yeah. and then you sneak down into the basement and open the cage, and it just eats you up because it's so hungry, you know. Out of the forest at so, night, exactly. You know, and and it's it's like are these supposed to be scary animals, or are they supposed to be? They're, they're all those things. Mm-hmm. They, they're lovable, scary, uh, you know, vulnerable, and vicious, and. And all of these parts of yourself that you tuck away that uh, belong to other belong to other experiences and earlier versions of yourself, mm. and those selves that we think we're now beyond actually come up and visit us all the time in moments when we 're triggered or mm-hmm. in moments when we have you know post traumatic stress we remember this old body and it comes forward and it really thinks that it's there that this is that moment, mm-hmm. and it acts in a very strange way because we're in the supermarket, you know, yeah. or we're, we're in traffic. So th- this is like those animals visiting us from underneath those layers and layers and layers and layers of memory. Mm-hmm. And I do you ask about the process of writing the book. It was it was a strange process for me because I thought I was going to be writing short lyrical descriptions like Rilke's Panther or Blake's Tiger mm-hmm. about these animals. But they ended up being long narrative poems, a lot of them. I mean, much longer than any poems that I've ever written before uh, that for me uh, go on for maybe three pages. Uh Oh, my God. Uh, So uh, most of my poems are about a half a page long and it makes reading from them in public difficult because it's like, here's another Uh one and here's another one. Here's another one. But. These poems are a little bit more fun to read because there are stories connected to them, and they last a little bit longer. but I had to write the longer poem because I really wanted to investigate what was down there, and I had to first connect it to a description of this these beasts you know mm-hmm. so so there's a lot that went into my figuring out how to uh, embrace all the parts and create a poetic that could accommodate
2: them. I love this description of how the form emerged here and how it was different than you had originally thought it would be. And it's such a common experience, right? We set off on a creative project thinking, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And then it Mm. turns out to be something sort of entirely different. David, I'm curious to know, as you were looking into these photos, you were writing these poems, um, did you find layers of yourself emerging too? Like what did you learn about yourself while writing this book?
0: Mm, Christy, that's a a good question. I think what I, what I began to learn was that there was a lot of tenderness for those parts of me that had made mistakes Mm -hmm. or that, you know, in casual conversation, I'll often say that I was an irritating child, (laughs) that I was, I was a hyperactive, um, a constantly moving, constantly busy, irritating kid. And I allowed myself to see the lovableness out of which that that came. That irritating quality was actually me trying to make up for the last mistake that I made, trying Uh to make up for the mistake before that, trying to make up for the mistake before that. So this this me that wanted to be loved was what Mm. kept emerging.
1: Hmm. Oh, that's so tender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I remember that too. I mean, I don't know if you two remember, but I remember that feeling so well. And that's the beauty of being a poet. You're, this is your job uh-huh. to remember those things. But it was the feeling of, oh, I got to make up for that thing that I just did. And then I do another thing that I have to make up for and another <laughs> and another
2: and another. And it goes on. That's so interesting. Yeah. So
1: I'm just wondering about, I love how this book was very metaphor driven, right? That's, that's exciting to me. One thing that I notice in myself when I'm working with a metaphor is sometimes I notice that it's pushing me in a place that I really don't want to go. And I think, you know, no, not that, not that. Or I notice that I want to push it someplace that it doesn't want to go. And there's this kind of uneasy mm-hmm. relationship with with the metaphor. So I'm just wondering, were there places where this book wanted to go and and you didn't want it to? Or were there places where you were frustrated with it because it felt too limiting? Or how did how did you get wrestled by the metaphor? Or were you?
0: I wrestled with the metaphor because I had a whole slew of poems that I knew were pretty good and they had nothing to do with this. (laughs) And and I'm thinking, how am I going to take these poems and weave them into these poems over here? Because I knew that these poems had had a lot of importance in the moment too. the other poems I had been working on all along. And they were they were coming from a different place, really until I, I found a common denominator and I realized that they were all coming from a place of darkness meeting light, mm-hmm. uh, frozenness meeting presence mm-hmm. and, and action and awareness. And so I, I actually was writing the poems and the poems themselves were not a problem. It was connecting them in the book mm-hmm. that became the real challenge. Mm-hmm. And luckily the, the book went under contract and as it happens so much these days, it was going to be two years before yeah. this thing came into print. So I had a ticking clock and I knew that I had two years to, to find a way to connect all of these parts. And eventually I began to see it. And it was because of, you know, the help of other readers and friends who said, yeah, well, tell me, tell me where this came from. Tell me where that came from. Mm-hmm. And just by talking it out, I was able to see mm-hmm. that I was able to see how to connect the dots.
2: That's so interesting to me that sometimes you know these things come out and they're connected in ways that aren't immediately obvious to you, but maybe more obvious to another reader, right? because they're they're coming in with with a different sense and and uh, you know you're revealing parts of yourself
0: right. well, we we always we always think that we're hiding parts of ourselves from the world, but <laughs> strangers see it immediately as they walk past us on the That's street. Right. So I think it's true for poems, yeah. too that. You have to trust that other people can see things that even you can't and trust them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that a large part of your process is involving other writers as listeners and readers?
0: Not that many, but there are maybe three people who I,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I lean on uh, quite a bit uh, and who are very reliable in telling me the truth about what's going on. So I know that if mm-hmm. they really like it, then I've done something well. And you can, trust I can it. trust it. Yeah. Exactly. It's not just praise for praise's sake to, you know, not to hurt my feelings.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they'll also, they're also very good about saying, you know, what's not clear because I think there's a level to what I do. And this isn't a self-criticism. It's just an observation that there's a level to what I do that is difficult, that it, that there's a, a kind of texturing that I enjoy that makes the poem harder to experience the first time through. You might have to read it two or three times. And so the challenge for me is how do I keep the reader there so that they'll come back and read this a second time or a third time? And, you know, that that this has always been a problem with, with poetry because you have one page to do what a novel can luxuriously do in 300 pages. And so there's a lot of texturing and there's a lot of correspondences that a reader might not immediately pick up on. But at the same time, you have to have some kind of memorable Mm -hmm. speech, like Frost said, some kind of clear window through which they can see what's in the house and try hard to get invited inside.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Emerging Form. We want to give a big shout out to a couple of our paid subscribers who have left us really kind reviews on iTunes. For instance,
2: Jill Berkey, who recently wrote... Wonderful. I love this podcast. I feel like I'm among friends when I listen to Christy and Rosemary talk about the creative process. One day, Rosemary shared a new poem that moved me and I knew I had to start being
1: a paid subscriber then and there. Thank you, Jill. (laughs) Rebecca Reynolds Weil wrote, amazing. You will laugh and grab a pen at the same time. This is a fantastic rollicking soup of humor, depth, thoughtful and practical suggestions and rich creativity. The two hosts are a joy and they wrap in wonderful guests to add to the discussions. Subscribe and share this delight. What a gift. I love that they both added subscribe to other people. That's nice. I know. Isn't that sweet?
2: Thank you so much for your support, dear listeners. You make this podcast possible. And if you want to join Jill and Rebecca, you can sign up as a paid subscriber at emergingform.substack.com. Thanks for listening. David, I'm a science nerd. And so I love that this book It really touches on science in so many ways. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Um, And you talked earlier about sort of getting into the science and becoming interested in, in the science here. What did that look like for you and sort of how have you integrated science into these poems?
0: Well, science in a very, very broad way for me is about how we look at the past and certain repeated outcomes in order to predict the future. And poetry is a kind of science too. We look at the past in order to imagine what reality actually is. Both are about reality. Both are about this, this longing to understand what's real. Uh, and mm-hmm. both have a kind of open-hearted attitude toward it. Science always has to be willing to say, well, we have new data. And so we have to talk about this in a different way. Mm -hmm. We thought the universe was this old. Now we think it's 13.8 billion years. It could be that in 10 years, we think it's something else. So science is always about, here's what I know, and here are the unknowns all around it. Uh, But it's based on repetitions from the past. And so poetry, I think, is very similar. Uh, And I think that's why I've kind of leaned toward poetry, yeah. I used to do this thing with kids where I would bring in this rock that looked like a clam. It had little markings on the top that looked like the ridges of a clam shell. And it was the color of mud. It, it looked like it was a <laughs> million years old. And it was something that my dad and his father found uh, in a river outside of Philadelphia. And then I would bring in an apple. And I would ask these 10-year-olds, okay, so here's this apple what's inside of it? And they would say, apple. And I would say, well, what does that look like? And they would say, it's a white fruit. And I would ask them, well, how do you know? And they'd say, uh-huh. like scientists, because I've eaten an apple. Right. So based on the past, they, they know the future. But with this other thing, I said, well, what's this? And, and one kid will always say, it's a rock. And another kid <laughs> will always say, it's a clam. It's definitely a clam. Uh-huh. And I would say, how do you know? And they would say, well, it looks like a clam, or I imagine that it's a clam, or it looks like a rock, and it feels like a rock. But neither of them knows exactly the right answer, and that's the difference, I think, between science and poetry. It's the, this willingness to imagine answers that could possibly be, uh, but which w- we don't finally know.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's gorgeous, is the is the willingness to imagine Mm-hmm. answers. Mm. I'm always thinking there's so many ways to do it right. That's one thing I love <laughs> about poetry, right, is that the, there there are infinite endings that could be the right and right. the right ending. I'm just right. going
2: to argue here though that that is that is something that scientists do science too. Do, I mean too. so much yeah. of what they're doing, you know, they are working in the realm of uncertainty and they have to <laughs> be imaginative and be open to different answers right. and to be considering these other things. So I think, you know, I think as a culture we sometimes um dismiss how similar poetry and science really are. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Chrisy, because that's that's what I started to realize that well, isn't a thought experiment a poem?
2: Right. It, it is.
0: It's an imagined answer. Uh-huh. You know, imagine you're yeah. on a train or you're standing outside of the uh-huh. train.
2: That's that's
0: a poem. So I, right. I right. the more I've looked into this, the more I realized that this is the same thing. We're all doing the same thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Well, Christy's actually doing a big project on uncertainty right now. So we just mm. we just really touched her her passion. Right. <laughs>
2: and I talked to poets, right, Rosemary? You said you have to talk
1: to poets. <laughs> and she yeah. even talks to poets. <laughs> right. I wanna pull in another thread. So you were saying earlier, and I, I wish I could say it exactly as you did, something about your curiosity right now as you're getting older, about the interface of of God and science and and, and writing. And this is another powerful thread in your book is spiritual practice. It's not overt. It's certainly not proselytizing in any way. I don't think, I don't know if you even mentioned the word God ever, but there's somehow th- this spirituality is informing the poems. Mm-hmm. And I know you've been engaged actively in uh, meditation and Buddhist teachings. And I just want to hear a little bit about what you said earlier, a little bit more about that God and science mm-hmm. knitting and how this mm-hmm. is changing your poetics
0: um that's yes it's it's such an important question rosemary that it's it's difficult to even know where to begin to answer that because for a long time i thought of myself as as a poet who was interested in buddhism or whose work was informed by buddhism and increasingly i think of myself as a buddhist whose practice is informed by poetry um and
2: it is, it's
0: certainly here in this book, it, the, the first poem of the book is called Ice and the second to last poem in the book is called Is. And it's a kind of devoted homage to the travels of the word is from its, you know, proto-Indo-European beginnings to now. And even earlier, of course, languages that we'll never hear spoken. Uh, so there's a, there's a, a longing in this book to move from stuckness in in past patterns mm-hmm. to spontaneity and awareness that for me are all kind of connected to this word is and that's really the whole practice for me uh, as as somebody who meditates okay. and who I just got a certification in teaching mindfulness from uh, Tara Brach and IMCW here in, in DC. Jack Kornfield was involved in that program too. So mindfulness to me is it, in some circles, it's connected with the, the Pali word sati, which means remembering, just, just simply remembering, but remembering mm-hmm. what? Not necessarily past patterns, mm-hmm. but remembering that you're here. Just coming back again and again and remembering that you're here. Mm-hmm. And so poetry has changed for me because the the ultimate outcome of a poem in my writing, not necessarily in everybody else's, but in my writing is to help me remember and help the reader remember with me that they're here. Mm hmm. Yeah. And the poets that I've always loved, been the poets that were doing that all along, like Rilke, like Emily Dickinson, uh, Walt Whitman, the poets that I first came to early 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 on are still the poets that are teaching me that and that I return to to be reminded. Hmm.
2: I love hearing you say that you're continuing to learn from them. That's that's really beautiful and it shows a certain mindfulness that I think is is really important.
0: Thanks, Christy. I mean, it's true, isn't it, that you can have one poem in your life. And if you return to it year after year after year, maybe every birthday you read Stopping by Woods on a snowy evening. Even better if your birthday is December 21st, the darkest night of the year, you know. right, (laughs) right. But every birthday, let's say every birthday you read Stopping by Woods on a snowy evening, I'll bet you that every year you'll see something else in a poem that Mm -hmm. rich and that deep. It's it's a poem that could be read as a YA poem mm-hmm. by a 12-year-old. How how scary, how creepy to be in the woods. And it's a poem that can be read by somebody at the very end of their lives and be very, very deeply meaningful in a different way. How exciting, how, how alive everything is here at the edge of the woods. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that the best poems reveal themselves to you slowly, richly, mm-hmm. you know, delectably, mm-hmm. as you get older.
2: Yeah,
1: that's so interesting. I like that. And I think we're going to have to end there. <sighs> I have so many more questions, but we'll throw them into the bonus okay, episode, bonus I episode. think. <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep talking to you. <laughs>
2: our our paid subscribers are going to get a whole nother episode with you next week because we have lots more questions to ask. Fantastic. About writing prompts and prose poems and all kinds of cool stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And- Thank you for for leaving us in delectability. (laughs) What what a lovely place to end. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Christy. Thank
1: you, Rosemary. Yeah, so great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Great to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola-Tromer, and my co-host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopestansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to
2: Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.